0: happy Father's Day. It is great to be a dad. Um, it's kind of easy to, to achieve greatness as a father in the eyes of your kids. All you have to do is leave the home and then open the door and come home. And uh, every time I do that, my kids are like, dad, you came home. The poets will sing of your greatness. <laughs> you return to us, and it's it's a good feeling every time I do it. Uh, I grew up with a pretty low definition of greatness. Greatness was uh, battling it out with my father in video games on the first iterations of the Macintosh Plus, Plus. and there were black and white games and shuffle puck and pong and whatever. Every time I beat him, I felt truly great. And eventually, it turned to chess. And in the context of the game of chess, I felt great when I beat my father. True greatness and that the definition of that eventually evolved in high school uh, or middle school, I forget when, uh, into dominating at sports. Believe it or not, I had bleached blonde hair at one point, and I was a jock. And, uh, and I loved pretending I was really good at sports. And, and uh, when my team won, I felt really good about myself, and that was true greatness. And then eventually it, involved, it evolved to uh, uh, winning the heart of my high school crush, um, whoever it was at the time, that was true greatness. And then eventually, thankfully, it evolved from that into getting good, really good grades, which was really just like job security and money in the future, and that was true greatness. And then I met Pastor Tommy when I was 16, and he ruined my life. And uh, he, he often preached, he introduced me uh, to the way of Jesus, and he often preached on this idea of, you get one life, don't waste it with fruitless pursuits. Some of the lyrics that he put in front of us, in front of my peers and friends, um, that we would sing along with, that we would believe in, were, uh, remember your creator in the days of your youth straight from Ecclesiastes. You were meant to live for so much more. That was Switchfoot. Be a history maker, David Crowder. We learned at that time that uh, inherent to the human experience is that time is running out. Life is short. I was exposed to preachers like John Piper uh, who would commonly hearken the phrase, don't waste your life. It was also very compelling to me. Even uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Dead Poets Society played a part. And I, had, I, I kind of like cultivated this carpe diem for God mentality. Life is short. I, I began to reevaluate and dream and, uh, and question what is life for? What is true greatness? If you Google it, greatness, uh, a common definition, it's across the board, but a common definition is. The ability to achieve what you choose. And I think at this church, at Mercy Hill, we have a better definition. We have a high view of God. And I think, uh, and we think, the definition of greatness is a someone, and that someone is Jesus. And he is a king. And his greatness is incomparable. He's not just a king. He is a king of kings. The king of kings. And this great king, who is the king of all other kings, he has a kingdom. And he says, it's coming, my kingdom is coming. And it's breaking into the world. And this king who has a kingdom was a teacher. And this rabbi king teaches more about his kingdom than anything else. That it's mysterious and it's rather complex. And what I mean by that is, I'll just, I'll just uh, prove that point with a few questions. Hopefully it will, it will breed some cognitive dissonance. And some unknown and some, uh, um, hopefully you won't even know how to answer the questions. The kingdom of heaven, is it hidden or is it revealed? Has it arrived or is it arriving now? Did Jesus establish it or is he establishing it? Does it bring peace or does it bring divisiveness? Hopefully you're summoning different scriptures to your mind right now and you're like, I don't know, those are hard questions, Jesse. Jesse. Are its citizens, the citizens of this kingdom, are they poor in spirit or are they full in spirit? In all its mystery and beauty of the kingdom of God, I'm going to focus on one aspect of it this morning. A facet of the kingdom that I believe we can so easily miss, that I believe each of us are called to, to grapple with, to wrestle with this morning. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus. They asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let's make sh- <laughs> This is already funny. Let's make sure we realize that. Uh, Mark 9 has a better setup even. Uh, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in the house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about <laughs> which of them was the greatest. <laughs> Jesus' answer couldn't have been further from their thoughts, probably, is my guess. He called a little child to him, and he placed the child among them, and he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Are you receiving that? Are you hearing that, Mercy Hill? Unless you change and become like little children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Greatness is childlikeness. It's very easy to miss. You see how easy this is to miss. Sometimes Jesus gives the disciples like a riddle-like sort of enigmatic teaching. And I'm kind of like, yeah, of course they don't get it. That was pretty mind-blowing, Jesus. Jesus. But we have the answer book. We have the spark notes. We have the theology laid out for us on a platter. Childlikeness is greatness. Don't hear that this morning and have it do nothing to you. This is an incredible example of how the kingdom is upside down, of how our greatest wisdom is but foolishness. The stuff of his kingdom isn't natural to our instinct. Our natural instinct is we encounter the world, we encounter... Adversity, we notice patterns, we see the harshness of man, the heart of man, over and over. What happens to us? What is our default as we age? We become calloused, we become cynical, bitter, and doubt filled. Not childlikeness at this very place and time in history, for instance, there is much to make us calloused and hardened right now. It doesn't matter what side of the socio, what, what point of the spectrum you're on, of the socio-political, historical, civil, scientific spectrum you are on. For much of us, for many of us, we, we, whatever we hear, whatever we encounter, whatever we read, it callouses us. For some of us, it's uh, you, you read something and you go, I want to avoid conflict. La, 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 la. I'm not hearing the chaos. I just want to be happy. And then for people that are like really like opinionated, we're like, I don't like those people. Those fools. And then we become embittered a little bit against those who are highly opinionated. For those of us that are opinion makers, for those that us are, uh, of, of us that are researching and uh, looking up every article we can find, almost everything we encounter or read in this heavily politicized, heavily polarized culture of ours, it reinforces our viewpoints against the other side. It reinforces the againstness of the other, regardless of what you read, right? Like you see something and it's either um, that's fake news. How could anyone believe that? Whoever believes that, those fools. Or we read something that agrees with our point of view and we go, yeah, finally, something, yeah, I I agree with that. Whoever doesn't agree with that and me and my friends, those fools. And listen, if you don't agree with everything I just said, you're a fool. I'm just kidding. Uh, Just kidding. Regardless of if you believe with every detail of that, we are a polarized society. We are quick to write people off Lots of people in our culture, and probably lots of other cultures throughout time and history, are easily embittered against the other that disagrees with them. Christians included. And I don't think that God wants us to be overly bitter and calloused in our hearts. Jesus goes so far, hyperbolically far, as to say, love your enemies. The kingdom of God is happening, and I don't want to miss it. Where is it? It overlays on any other kingdom. China, America, Babylon, Africa, whatever. Any other kingdom. It's like a transparent foil. It overlays, it changes everything, and no one notices. Luke 17, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the people of God or sorry, uh, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Another translation says, or it's within you. The kingdom of God is within you, so no one's going to notice. Many of us have lost the childlike wonder, the imagination for it. It's easy to miss out on. This has been the case all along. Most of the people that heard Jesus' pronouncement, the, the, te- the original teachings, can you imagine what that would be like sitting on some kind of rock on a hill and hearing Jesus talk about this kingdom. Most of the people that first heard this were baffled. They just thought, this miracle worker who I've seen do teachings or heard stories of an uncle's uncle's cousin who uh, did teachings, uh, 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 or sorry, uh, who, who, who professed that Jesus did these healings, um, he's either going to keep doing these miracles to a violent degree and overthrow Rome. And, and these healings and these like peaceful things he's doing are going to result in smiting, divinely smiting this other kingdom that's ruling us. And Herod's going to be overthrown. And then they're going to find, we're going to finally have like a, a perfectly distilled Jewish kingdom. Or it's not going to be established. And, and this guy's a liar. And then after his death, as he prophesied, Uh, his kingdom began breaking into the world in the first century in the most unexpected of ways. People filled with joy and peace. They're probably pretty weird if you met them. People filled with love and kindness. People who were spiritually reborn with childlike trust in their heavenly father. So much so that when Rome, when their government wronged them, they trusted the father to take care of it. They trusted dad to take care of it. They were great in the kingdom. Tenderhearted, non cynical, lovers of people who, who overthrew, who deconstructed, and destroyed the idea of Rome from the inside out. Ideas like Caesar is the God, and strength is king, worldly power is king. The Christians were a great ideological threat. That's why Rome hated the Christians, viewed them as a cancer. The more you killed them, the faster they spread. Jesus' followers responded to the threat of death with, I love you. They killed my Lord, too. It's like an opposite kingdom. It's so weird. Can we admit that? That it's a very strange, anti-human instinct kingdom? Jesus says, most people are going to go through the wide gate. They're going to miss it. They're not going to go on the narrow road. Most people will miss it, and I don't want to just because it grates against my personal instincts. May my instinct get in line under Jesus. So when Jesus says, this is greatness in my kingdom, may I listen, care, may I recalibrate, and invite him to change me, and uh, may I stop pushing against him and his spiritual ministry in me unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven christians be more tender hearted be open do not be too dignified do not be prideful before god and others god hates pride and that's a tricky thing cuz who really needs to hear a challenge on pride the proud people But if you're proud, are you really going to listen and just take it in? In this moment, would you be open to the idea that you really need to hear this message? This childlike facet of the kingdom, you you need to hear about that. We need to explore what that means together. Be open to this for you. Really, it's probably a lot of us. Scripture is really intense about this. Proverbs 16 says, The Lord... Detests all the proud of heart. Another translation says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Think about that. Pride is so disgusting to God, or sorry, pride is, yeah, yeah, pride is so disgusting to God that the proud of heart are like totally detested by Him that He calls them an abomination. Yet we don't take it that seriously. If I said, Mercy Hill Church, I struggle with pride. Some of you would go, That's really cool for confessing, bro. Like, that, like heavy is the crown. Like, you're a leader. Like, you got to confess that. Like, it's, you got to be strong, and it's tough, and it's cool that you said you're prideful. But if I said, I'm really struggling with lust, a lot of you guys would be like, That's gross. Why did they let him talk on stage? I feel uncomfortable. (laughs) Especially in the U.S., we downplay pride. We practically encourage it. We give it different titles like self-esteem and building yourself up and believing in yourself. Uh, A lot of that's just vanity and ego, which is stuff we cultivate really hard in our teens, and then it gets worse as we get older for a lot of us. Proverbs 21, all a man's ways seem right to him, But the Lord weighs his heart. James 4, humble yourself before the Lord. He will lift you up. Jesus says, childlikeness is greatness. Jesus isn't being silly or sassy. This is ironically serious. Spiritual childlikeness. Have you lost it? Personally, you, right now, ask yourself. Have you lost that? Have you let the world change you and callous you so much? Be like a child, you Christians. May you have wonder again. May you cherish the time to talk and walk and stroll with your heavenly Father. To dream with Him. Where you get to commune with Him for the sake of joy. I once knew someone who would leave uh, little notes that they made for God they would write little messages to God and they would leave it on a, fen- a fence post for instance in a field that was for God like my daughter does for me around the house that's a picture dad that's for you okay cool I love it it doesn't even make sense but I love it <laughs> may you be less cynical about quiet times may you be less cynical about loud times with dance and music. May you simply take God at his word again. If I told my three-year-old son, I could move that mountain. I'm strong enough if I wanted to. He would believe me. He'd be foolish to believe me. He is a fool. Um, Do that, like, like, don't do that with humans, but do that with God. Like, take him at his word. May you be more filled with expectation for what your heavenly Father can do and will do. Like a child, if you haven't been calloused by the world and, and taught not to trust, you're going to trust with like such abandonment. May you trust him again. May you be filled with faith. Jesus promotes being faith-filled, Mark 11 Have faith in God, Jesus replied to them. I tell you that if anyone should say to this hill, get up, throw yourself into the sea, and without any doubt in his heart, believe that what he says will happen, then it will happen. That is why I tell you whatever you pray about and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. I'm not sure when it happened exactly, but along the way, in my faith journey I began believing that being like cool and balanced about the things of God controlled having an even temper um, temperament about the things of God I believe I, I don't know why I, I, be, I, I started to believe that that was better that was more effective as if that's anything that Jesus sounds like. Somewhere in me, I, I developed this need to, to show other people I'm cynical too, so that they would be- believe me when I said stuff about Jesus. I guess because I'm appealing to their cynicism or something. Doubt is admirable because it's intellectual, maybe. Like this is actually this is a confession. I, like this is real. If you hear me share something about God, you may have already or will hear from me something like, "You know, I'm not one to go around believing all this charismatic stuff." But uh, the other day, I did think I may have perceived God to have possibly said, and that's that's my predication. That's like my opening. That's so stupid. That is not how Jesus talks about his kingdom. It's not how the disciples talk about the movement of God in their midst, about the work in his kingdom. It's like, have faith. If you think God is doing something or showing you something, be faith-filled, not cynicism-filled. May we not get in the way of what God wants to do. Maybe we started doing that Some of us, because of all the charlatans out there, but let's not let them water down what the Spirit of God wants to do in us, in our church. Let us not, with our sense of dignity and avoidance of the awkward, get in the way of whatever God wants to do in Mercy Hill, in us. And I'm not saying, let's get really weird for the sake of making it weird. Let's get really childlike and and spectacle-like because of that, to get that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in his kingdom, there is childlikeness, which is a markedly different essence than any other kingdom of this world. And if we resist that spiritual childlikeness in us, in each other, in our little spiritual community, and I've named a few possibilities about what that childlikeness looks like? Could be. If we resist all of it, then we resist and push away that which Jesus says is greatest in his kingdom. Therein we are in danger of pushing away the kingdom, missing it, the posture with which the king desires for his citizens. One relevant recent example in my life, Jared Jones Some of you guys know him. He attends our church. He helps out with the youth group. He's an awesome guy. He's an incredible person, wonderful person. He has had neck pain at the base of his skull for almost seven years. Borderline migraine, 8 to 8.5 on the pain scale. Jared is not a complainer about his pain. He is a complainer about um, strategy board games when I beat him in those, but he is not a complainer about his pain. And he says uh, that he gets about two minutes of pain relief per year on his pain. Six years of relentless pain, almost seven years of, of relentless pain, unknown origin. He attended Spirit-Led, which is a monthly time of prayer and worship and sharing, and he had the boldness and didn't care about the sol- social attention to ask for a bunch of people to pray for him. Lots of people here prayed for him. His pain, oddly, for the, for the first time, significantly fluctuated. It went down to 20% and then it crept back up. He was discouraged. But it was duly noted. Something happened in his neck. Jared, with emboldened faith, he came over to our house. He's been hanging out at our house like every night. And, uh, and he's like, can you guys pray for me again? Matthew 10, Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have re- leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received Freely give. Jesus promotes bold faith and that we can command sickness and that his spirit is in us. So, of course, we prayed for healing in Jesus' name for Jared. He requested it, uh, and there was no healing. At one point, it's getting late and it's getting weird because we're literally praying for hours, asking God to intervene out of sincere love for our brother, Jared, and um, it's not happening. <laughs> And, I, and I'm, I'm starting to go, uh, cool, um, it's, um, maybe it's time to watch a movie or whatever. And, and Jared, what I mean earlier by it's getting weird is Jared literally said at one point, uh, this is weird for people, to do, for people to do this, like pray in faith that Jesus can physically change something. He's like, Jared said, I believe in this. I believe it, that Jesus can, but I've never like done it. With people over and over in, in an evening, it's fascinating to really do it. So we reach this point. Again, uh, I'm tired, and I'm like, eh, it didn't work. Okay, let's move on and watch a movie. Jared says, you know, I've heard that we can keep asking over and over, like little kids asking for stuff, like a persistent widow. Darren, Darren actually, my wife actually brought up that parable in the context of this. And, we're, and Jared said, you know, I've, I've heard that some people after asking again and again and again and again that you can receive uh, healing after that. So Jared is being almost childlike at this point. He's uh, opening up. He believes us that we love him, that God loves him. He's feeling it. He doesn't care. And he's like, let's go again. Like my kids when I super bounce them on, tr- on the trampoline. Like, again, Dad, again. <laughs> Seriously, it never stops. Um, then, with abandoned childlike disposition with an abandoned uh childlike posture, he gets on his knees and he begins pouring his heart out to the lord with other with utter authenticity he confesses the deep things of his heart deep pains uh to us uh to uh, the people that were there to, to Robin and and my wife and I and um and we're feeling it we're like yeah like let's just Let's just go for it. And and we speak to that pain. We're emboldened. uh, And like the silly children of God that we are, we continue to command the pain to leave out of his neck. In Jesus' name. For his neck to be healed. And I'm not saying that I know the equation to this. I for sure don't, you guys. If I did, I would probably find a bunch of teenagers and then go on a healing ministry uh, like Jesus did like, go from town to town and just healing people in Jesus' name. I don't know the equation. What I do know is that Jared significantly raised the uncomfortable bar for us and stopped caring about everything but the reality of God and helped us stop caring, the people that were praying for him, and our prayers became more childlike in nature, less refined, and his neck was healed. A sign of the kingdom. Yeah, it's really cool. And there are tons of healings that God is doing all over the world. I just saw one in my house, so I'm talking about it. His neck was healed, a sign of the kingdom. He's no longer in pain. Ask him about it, Jared Jones. If you don't know who Jared Jones is is, and you're like struggling with faith and that would be a faith encouragement, like if you're like part of the wicked and perverse generation that needs a sign, like talk to him personally. He, He will embolden your faith. I think I care more about his healing than Jared. Luke 8, Luke 8. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the the people are crowding and pressing against you. So basically Peter's like, there's a lot of people here, dude. Everyone's, Everyone's kind of touching you, bro. Jesus Jesus said, "Someone touched me, and I know the power has gone out from me." Then the woman said, uh, "Then the sorry, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, so she's like, Jesus is the guy. Like I touched his robe, and he healed me. So he's gonna notice. Like he's gonna find this out eventually." Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet in the presence of all the people. She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. I read this passage in closing because she tried not to be seen. This wasn't a culturally appropriate thing she did. There were enough first century cultural dynamics at play that caused her to be trembling and fall at Jesus' feet, almost apologizing when she realized she was going to be found out. Point being, the risk was worth it for her. She wasn't trying to be a crowd spectacle. She ended up being one. She wasn't try- That wasn't her goal. But she was willing to be, if that's what it took. It was worth the risk to get over to Jesus in the crowd and do this possibly inappropriate, undignified thing and touch the clothing of the rabbi king. In verse 47, she explains to the crowd well, sorry, she doesn't actually explain it where we can read it and, and see it. But you guys, she, she explained to the crowd why she touched Jesus. And the why here is the best part of the whole story. The Hebrew word um, tzitzit is hem, the edge, the outermost portion of the garment. We see this word in Numbers chapter 15, verse 38, when it's describing the edge and the tassels portion of Hebrew traditional regalia, the garment. And we see this very same word in Malachi chapter four, verse two, when it's talking about the Messiah. It says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you will go free, leaping with joy like calves, not cows, calves, leaping with joy like calves led out to the pasture. The Hebrew word here for wings is tzitzi. The word is interchangeable for outermost hem, wings. See, this was a God-fearing Jewish woman who knew her scripture and believed in the Messiah. She knew that if she could just touch the outermost portion of his garment, the Messiah's garment, that there's healing there in his tzitzi, in his wings. Mercy Hill Church, anchor yourself in scripture. Know it well in what you believe in what you truly believe about this Messiah King and his kingdom. And then be childlike with what he's calling you to do. Jump. Whatever you feel like he's calling you to do, do it. Jump and do it. With what he calls you. With your identity. With what you are. He calls you, the king calls you his. That's what he says about who you are. Stop worrying my encouragement, my challenge. Stop worrying about pretty much anything else. Eyes on him. You're his kid. Act like it. In the dignified and the undignified. And if you're in like a wilderness of sorts and you can't find his gaze in the crowd and maybe you feel like you've abused his grace too many times and you don't feel childlike, maybe you feel calculated, too philosophical in nature, like you wouldn't know how to be his child. You wouldn't know how to be totally transparent with him. Remember, he gave the Israelites a way back over and over and over. We're grafted into that. We are his people. His mercies are new every morning. He can work with you. It's not your job. It's not your call to count you out. He can find a way back for you in matters of the heart. He's the master, not you. He knows how to do it. Maybe give up on protecting yourself so much on what you believe about you. Maybe what you believe about you is wrong. Maybe it doesn't have to be true. And who cares what people will think? Our prayer as a church just needs to be like totally open and surrendered. Search me. Know my heart, Lord. Have your way, whatever you want to do. Even if it's the opposite of my natural thinking, of my disposition, even if it's to become like a child, what? Even that. Lead me into it. Show me how to do it. I'm totally open to you. I open my heart to you, living spirit of God. See, we are more than people in a room agreeing on stuff. We are more than a philosophical house, some sort of Ivy League institution that talks about syllogisms, premise, 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 conclusion. We are more than that. We are the body of Christ, not just because we believe and behave like Jesus, but rather also perhaps most importantly because his divine spirit takes residence in us. One of the most challenging and poignant And utterly awesome things that Tommy, Pastor Tommy, has ever said on stage at Mercy Hill while I have lived, while I have lived at Mercy uh, in Milwaukee, is this: Mercy Hill will not simply be a church of philosophy. We're a people of God with whom He spiritually inhabits, not just a house of ideas. Hear this, Christians. The living spirit of God is as available to you as you make yourself. The living spirit of God is as available to you as you make yourself. He is withholding nothing from you. We often withhold from him for all kinds of different complicated reasons. After Jared's healing, he wrote down uh, this question. Why do we always let ourselves get in the way of the heavenly experiences we can have in this life? We need to be weak and vulnerable with each other. When I am weak, he is strong. Yeah. His kingdom, it, it's so obliterating to our, to our natural stuff. And and truly, I I really think that I get in the way of him. It's not him withholding. Like, I don't know how it happened along the way um, from the point that I was 16 and Tommy told me about the gospel and it's it's like purest distillation. But eventually, I I just started putting calluses up and I didn't look at openness and childlikeness and tenderheartedness as a good thing, as the, the thing that allows God to get in. Jesus says childlikeness is greatness. So let's submit to that. But can we do that as a church? Can we submit to that together? Can we admit that, that that's not natural for us? Um, I, I asked the, the prayer team to be available up here on these like sort of slanted black walls. They're gonna have masks on, so it's uh, it's even a bit safer. Like go and pray with them. Scripture instructs you to pray with people to have them battle alongside you in the spiritual realm. Do we buy that? Do we buy that? So I'm not, like maybe all of us in this second service at Mercy Hill on this Sunday morning are like, childlikeness, totally. (laughs) But if you're not, then ask God to like affect you, to break in, to attack you, to, to work it out. And if you don't know how to find that pathway in your mind and spirit on your own, then ask for prayer or whatever it is, of whatever I said, ask someone to spiritually battle alongside you. So some people from the prayer team are gonna be up here. We're gonna do that uh, during this time of worship. And we're gonna pray a- a- and praise the Lord Jesus together. So let's stand and do that right now. I'm gonna pray briefly. Father, thank you, Lord with tender heartedness and wonder and less pride and more faith we want to be your church we want to become the fiery center the church that you want us to be the inherited plan of Jesus and the apostles we ask that you would whisper into our ear that you would speak to us in our dreams and that we could remember them and share them with our friends and with our spouse and that we could go on little local missions together wherever you might send us we want to know you personally. We confess, we confess together a nature that like pushes you away, sometimes with such great dignity. We wish instead to be hum to be humble before you, to humble ourselves before others as well. Less of us, more of you, King Jesus. We want to stand now and sing to you and receive prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.